This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number smart beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com this episode of travel today with peter greenberg is brought to you by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, a location we've never broadcast from, so this is a first for us. Back in September, only two months ago, for the first time in the 89-year history of the kingdom, the Saudis opened the doors. It was never available to tourists, and now it is. To more than 49 countries around the world, the Saudis are now processing 55,000 visas every week. That's up from zero, by the way. And of course, it comes under a situation of rather bad optics, the one-year anniversary of the tragic killing, the murder, if you will, of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Having said that, people are still coming. Saudi is open for business at a time of dramatic change in their cultural rules. Women can drive, they can go to the movies, they can go to sporting events. They do not necessarily have to cover up. The Saudis have changed the rule about unmarried couples staying in the same hotel room. I mean, think about this. This weekend, they're having a prize fight. They just had Formula E racing. The kingdom has swung open the doors wildly and change is happening almost every minute. Jumping around now, my next guest is an old friend. We've known each other nearly four decades. He's had an amazing career, which I'm going to get him to talk about. But his current job, which is one of the reasons why we're here, is the chief executive officer at Dorea Gate Development Authority, which I will explain. Actually, he will explain in a second. Jerry Anzarello, how are you, sir? Great, my beloved friend. You know, you and I go back to the days of, you know, your your story, your trajectory is 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 a story in and of itself that needs needs to be shared only because if people are interested in being in the hotel and hospitality travel and tourism business, you're a great example because you started as what? A banquet busboy on May 2nd, 1967 at the Gotham Hotel in New York City. And the Gotham, of course, then became uh, per, uh, Regines, the, yeah, and, and then it became uh, the, the Peninsula, Peninsula right, which is, which it is today. today. Yeah. Yes. So you went from a busboy right. to general manager. Yes. And the youngest general manager ever in the history of Four Seasons, I believe. Uh, but Yes, that's right. Thank you. And the youngest general manager in the history of Hilton before that. Right. And then you did the impossible. You did the Brave New World of Africa, right? Uh, starting in Sun City. Uh, for those people old enough to remember what Sun City was, it was its own sort of country. Uh, 
in which nobody had ever heard of it, and all of a sudden it's there on the map, and Frank Sinatra's performing. I mean, right. it's it's crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, it was a very special time. It's uh, there were tribal homelands uh, during apartheid South Africa. And as you remember, one of the principal ones had an unusual name, Baputetswana. Which I could never pronounce, so thank you right. for doing Baputetswana. that. Baputetswana. And in the homelands, uh, gambling was legalized. So what happened is that uh, all of a sudden, regional tourism popped up. But no one really, no one went internationally during apartheid. The infrastructure wasn't there. Uh, no infrastructure and uh, just... Uh, uh, simpatico to the political situation. No one wanted to support a regime that had Mandela and wonderful people in prison. But when he got out of prison, uh, February 11, 1990, all of that changed because it flipped around and it went from a place that nobody went to, and you were with me on those early days, to a place that everybody went to. So in a, in a small period of time, five years, um, the uh, South Africa went from basically 200, 157,000 foreign visitors to 7 million in five years. That's a big, big uh, incline. I will tell you this. I, I go back to a very funny time when I went to get a visa to go to South Africa in 1992. Yeah. And I went to their office in New York, and they didn't really want to give me the visa. They finally gave me the visa, but they put a, 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 an endorsement on the visa in handwriting that said, we'll only write nice things. Right. I'm not you can't make yes, that up. That's right. Yeah. You can't make that kind of stuff up, but that's that's what happens when you're dealing with unsophisticated countries, but no one on no one on the planet knows better than you, but if you take the 194 countries and the 44 dependencies, if you take the 238 countries, you know, even as soon as 1998, 1999, you had 78, 79 countries with a minister of tourism. That was it. Yeah. Now, 20 years later, it's double that. So what does that mean? It means that now everybody understands the benefits of tourism and employment and uh, foreign currency and, and all the ambassadorial parts of tourism, making people visit and share together. So um, heads of state now have gotten very sophisticated. I often say, uh, even trying to be very diplomatic, that even some of those countries that had minister of tourism, you usually gave it to a relative that helped you on a campaign, or, but it was like a C-level position. Oh, uh, it was a handout. Yeah, that's right. You know, this guy can't do any harm, so let's give him the tourism portfolio. Now, when you look, certainly G20, um, and when you look at the top 50 uh, tourism countries of the world, usually the best and brightest minister is, uh, of at least in the top five, is the minister of tourism. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you went from working with Saul Kersner in Africa, right. to Saul Kersner Global. Right. You were the one who opened up Atlantis in the Bahamas. Right. I was there for that outrageous party. <laughs> it was fun. Um, Grace Jones coming down on a cable, and yeah. I'll never forget that. Yeah, that was wild. It was wild. And then you went over to Forbes. Yeah. Uh, running uh, their entire operation in terms of, of the metrics that are used to determine quality of service. Right. Well, um, you know, my father used to say that there's three kinds of people in this world. They're the people that make things happen, the people who watch what happens, and the people who wondered what happened. You know, you and I... I have to laugh. I've been using that line yeah. for 20 years. Yeah, me too. And I, I love it because, um, you know, we, 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 you and I are simple servants. We, uh, we're communicators, but we communicate joy, festivity. We communicate the sense of gathering. And um, I've always, I've been lucky. I've always gravitated to p 
projects that could change things. And um, with Forbes, that was very, very important to Forbes Travel Guide because service and standards had to become global like the Olympics. And what I've been saying for 40 years is that the most beautiful hotel doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. Because just because you spent $200,000, $300,000 a guest room, where's the human connectivity? Because that's what hospitality is all about. So uh, I'm very pleased that we took the country from its origin of uh, North America. And under my uh, time there serving with my colleagues, we took it to 106 countries. So now Forbes Travel Guide around the world and winning that five-star, that four-star, is the equivalent of the Olympic gold medal of hospitality. Very proud of those years. And then you did the uh, ultimate segue. You went to the brave new world of Saudi Arabia where we are right now. <laughs> sure. And, you know, it's, it, it was one brave new world when you went to Africa on the cusp. Right. You're here on the cusp. Yeah. I mean, the first time in 89 years, the kingdom opening its doors yeah. uh, to foreign tourism. Um, and at the same time, redeveloping and repurposing its own heritage. Yes. And, um, again, this is something that as you get older and you're in the business long enough, um, you know a few things. One is that if you have closed borders like Saudi had for 89 years, you allow uh, perceptions or stereotypes to exist because people who have access to social media and everybody's got a phone that can take pictures and stuff like that, they don't really get to see the real topography. So you'll, you'll continue a stereotype that Saudi Arabia is this country with just deserts and camels and stuff like that when it has snow in the north and deep, rivet, gorged valleys and beautiful plateaus and canyons. Yes, it does have the beautiful deserts of the Hidden Quarter and elsewhere, but it also has one of the most beautiful coral reefs in the world with the Red Sea. So it is a staggeringly beautiful country, and only opening it up to leisure tourism will people see. And the one thing that we see just in the month that we've uh, opened up to the first 49 countries, plus Macau and Hong Kong, is that People are saying, wow, I had no idea. Now, last week, we issued 55,000 visas. And we're, we're mapping it very carefully. And what we're hearing is the astonishment of how diverse and how beautiful the country is. But most importantly, about how generous and nice the Saudis are. So if you don't have the, if you don't have the borders open, you perpetuate stereotypes. That Well, let's talk about one of those stereotypes. Yeah. When you first came over here, yeah. what did your own friends tell you? Well, they said, you know, uh, you, you have to be very careful here because, uh, you, you know, obviously um, it is uh, a very, very sacred place because Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, our wonderful uh, king, his majesty, King Salman, you know, when you introduce this king, you have to call him by the appropriate title, which is the custodian of the two holy mosques, his majesty, the King Salman. Well, that's because being the custodian of the two holy mosques, a billion Six, uh, 600 million people. So you cannot uh, mess with that because of what it means to so many people around the world. Um, and th of that billion six, uh, there's only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction uh, that, have, uh, uh, that have hurt the image of uh, Islam. Uh, most of those people, 99.99, are very generous, very uh, thoughtful people. We're speaking to Jerry Anzarillo, the chief executive officer of Dorea Gate Development Authority. And now it's your opportunity to, Jerry, to explain to me what the hell is Dorea Gate? <laughs> it's a, everybody asks me that. You know, what happens is that, again, in the earlier segment when we talked about not having uh, tourism, 
you don't know things. You can't see things because they're closed. Now, iconically, Derea, like a ray of sunshine, Derea, is where the Saudi state started. It's where the Arabian Peninsula started, the entire Arabian Peninsula. So if you look at the Gulf uh, countries, the six Gulf countries, after different occupations and different wars and sieges, um, what is now Saudi Arabia, the tribes splintered out, which would become Kuwait and Bahrain and uh, Oman and you know uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates, but it originated here. Now, why did it originate in Derea? Because one of the most beautiful oasis in the world and the most beautiful one in all of Arabia is the Wadi Hanifa. Now, here in this part of the world, the Wadi is an ancient riverbed. Um, most people around the world don't really equate that with an oasis, but that's what an oasis is because it, it's fed with underground water. So 1,300 years ago, verified by historians, uh, traders came to get out of the sun and to uh, rest and rejuvenate for a week or two before they carried on their caravans. Well, what did they trade? They trade uh, silks and spices and dates and food and uh, different things. And what happened is that when you trade, you hang. And when you hang with people, you talk to people. And when you talk to people, you have meals with people. And it became a place where people settled down. They liked it. So Derea, 300 years ago, in mud and straw homes, the largest mud straw community in the world, had 30,000 people living in it. So the way everybody sees the Acropolis as the symbol of ancient Greece, and it's still there, as you know, the way people go to Rome and visit the Colosseum as a symbol of Roman architecture, Roman society, the same way with Machu Picchu or what the pyramids mean in Egypt, Egypt or Chichen Itza in Mexico, this is Derea to the Arabian Peninsula and to Saudi Arabia. And that will become uh, the icon. And now when we're fortunate enough, the Crown Prince did an amazing job. And um, thanks to uh, his commitment to global geopolitics and uh, understanding it, uh, the G20 comes to Riyadh. It comes to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, to Riyadh, and to Derea, this time November next year. And then when everybody sees those images, they'll understand that that's the birthplace of Saudi Arabia. But when you came on board for Derea, it had not been opened. Okay. It had not been restored in any way. It was, it was essentially a, if you'll excuse the expression, a crumbling monument. You had to, you had to fix it. Well, um, actually, the credit goes to uh, His Majesty the King. Because when I first visited today, 22, 23 years ago, that's the condition it was in. But at that time, um, the king, the current king, uh, King Salman, was governor. And considering that that's his home, his father's home, the house of al-Saud, that's where it started. He said, you know, I don't like this. And it's actually he, the king, who started the restoration 25 years ago. Now, we put some enhancements on it to get to where it is now, but uh, really the credit has to go to his majesty. Right, but you had your work cut out for you when you came in. Oh, big I time. was here a year ago, yeah. and it's not what it looks like today. No, that's correct. Bec and that's where, that's where the praise of the crown prince comes in, because the crown prince is a, a rather extraordinary person because, um, you know, the king now, um, you know, could you imagine having the founder of the country, the founder of the kingdom as your father? Well, Every king of Saudi Arabia has been a son of King Abdulaziz. 
uh, MBS, as we affectionately call him, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, will be the first grandson. But what's extraordinary about the Crown Prince at age 34 is that you cannot believe how sophisticated he is, how strict he is on cultural preservation, and how much he believes in res- in restoring and keeping uh, Saudi culture and honoring the past. Usually when you're young and have resources and power, usually ambition is forward thinking. But the Crown Prince is very strict in saying that we cannot have a healthy future without honoring our past. And so you had the financial commitment and the political support to be able to, to turn that around. Yes, and, and you know, that, those are two big elements, as you know. If you have the financial resources and you have the authority that the Crown Prince has, but more important uh, is that the Crown Prince has the vision and he's strict. So in three and a half kilometers of the seven-kilometer um, Dereya master plan, uh, this will be built in the traditional Najda architecture, and a lot of it in the mud. And he's prohibiting uh, surface traffic. These, this is meant to walk like you would in Florence and Siena and Marrakesh and Fez. So it's very sophisticated because um, this January, January 2020, we will begin excavation on seven and a half million square meters of uh, uh, soil because all of the infrastructure will be below ground and all the cars will park below ground. All the services will be below ground as people walk up to this cultural mud village. Hello? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, we talk about the Crown Prince, his impact at a very young age yep. on a society that is for the first time in 89 years, essentially opening the doors. Right. Uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is, a little bit more than a year ago, we had the murder of uh, Khashoggi. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to you about, you know, what happened when you first came over here and your friends say, well, be careful. And, you know, it's this brave new world. Let me tell you what my friends told me when I came over here. I said, be careful from another reason. You're going to get your head chopped off. You're going to get shot. They, you know, because, let's face it, a journalist was, was, was killed. Yeah. How, do every, how does everybody come to grips with that? How do you deal with that moving forward? Yeah, there's, I, I think there's two pieces to it. Um, one is that the more you travel to all the different countries, there's a gap between what perception is and what you read and see in the media than what actually happens on the ground. Like, you know, you get these words that, oh, the Iranians hate Americans and see all these protests. But you've been to Iran. The Iranians are very nice people. So uh, there's a different thing. Now here... And by the way, the Saudis and and the Iranians, no love lost there. No, yeah, but you know what happens? Uh, You could probably find hundreds of conflicts around the world of different ideologies. The great thing about tourism is that... We don't focus on ideology. We focus on biology. We focus on what joins us as humans, not divides us. So even going back to uh, last October, the Crown Prince has, a, has addressed this. No one was more shocked and horrified and saddened about that incident than Saudi Arabia, than the Saudi community. And he's addressed it. It's in the judiciary. The judiciary will sort this out. 
But in the meantime, those of us who are in the business of hospitality, our job is to stay focused on what we do. Create environments where people can be festive, where people can be joyful, where they could share, where, where we promote inclusion. You know, the Crown Prince has said publicly on many occasions that he wants to return Saudi Arabia to, to its moderate past. You know, prior, you know, when the Ayatollah came and everything changed in the 1970s, the geopolitical winds at that time changed the whole region. Well, you had to adjust to that region, otherwise the whole region would have collapsed. Well, you know, King Abdulaziz, it took him 23 years to get liberation and, and to join all the tribes to become what is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now, as you pointed out, next year be the 90th anniversary. So to have one family with stability run the kingdom for 113 years is extraordinary, you know? in a very difficult region where, where your neighbors are not that friendly. So um, the Crown Prince deserves a lot of credit. Um, you know, there was some, some recent uh, incidents that were very problematic here in terms of aggression. Um, he's very measured. He, uh, he's very inclusive. Well, you guys were attacked by Iran. Well, you know, I won't go into that part of it, but I will tell you this. We have heads of state that visit us almost on a weekly basis. His Majesty the King and the Crown Prince are very, very well loved and admired. And, uh, you know, they're very, very measured. They're, they're very thoughtful. But the big thing that they focus on is that people from all over the world can come to Saudi Arabia and see all that's beautiful about the kingdom. But you do understand the optics here. Oh, of course. And, and you see, our job is to focus on what we do best. And if you create situations where people share, Take the time to get to know each other. Have a meal. Have something to drink. Go for a walk. Talk. It, 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 this is communal. This is human. And this is why travel is the best ambassador in the world. Because the more people travel, they realize two things. One is how much we have in common. And then the other thing is how small you are in the big picture of things, which, which creates humility. And humility is always good. And of course, since they opened the doors yeah. and, and granted the visas, but it's more than that. It's women being allowed to drive. It's women being allowed to go to the movies, to even go to a sporting event. Yeah. Um, dress codes have changed, yep. right? Rules about who can stay in what hotel rooms have changed. This is radical considering what it was a year ago. Yeah, but you want to know something if you hear, we don't use the word radical, we use moderate. And that's what Saudi Arabia was. Right, but the change itself relative to where it yeah, was. but you see what happens is that that's Mohammed bin Salman. You know, uh, the, the crown prince, like most Saudis, you know, most Saudis, you see, the Saudis don't uh, brag. Uh, they're, they're modest in that. So in, since 1998, they've sent 600,000 Saudis abroad for college, paid for their college. You know what's happening with those 600,000 young ones? They're now? coming they, back. They love MBS. They're coming back with language skills and master's degrees and PhDs, and they're fired up, and they're very optimistic about the future. And still talking to Jerry Anzarillo, the chief executive officer of the Durea Gate Development Authority. Jerry, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we've made the changes. The door is now open. You're getting all your young people coming back because they want to be part of the new wave. You still have to build the infrastructure. Right. It's not just DGGA. It's 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 the Red Sea and all the islands that have been essentially undeveloped. Yes. It's it's uh, all the UNESCO World Heritage sites. Which, by the way, if you take a look at, at most UNESCO World Heritage sites around the world, they're not properly displayed. Right. They're not properly presented. People don't even know they're there. They're listed. Yep. But not so great. Right. So there's got to be. 
a master plan that deals with all of this now because you can't do it in a vacuum. It's one thing to grant the visas. People still need a place to stay. People need a place to be entertained. People need a place to go, to eat, to do the communal stuff you're, you're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard the word ambitious when describing the crown prince. Um, he's methodical. He's thoughtful. Um, he's intelligent and he's very visual. But now politically, he, his ministers around him all have PhDs. They're all best in class. And on this tourism initiative, he set up a council that combines the ministers, Minister of Finance, Minister of Transportation, Minister of the Interior, Minister of Tourism, Minister of Culture. Why? Because he wants all of the resources of the kingdom to work synergistically together where you can accelerate building the infrastructure. Now, people will say, will they come? Because there's a lot of countries where you can come up with very pretty ad campaigns and, you know, 20 years later, the numbers are very marginal because they're just not fun or they're just not interesting or the people are not kind. This is different here. So what happens now is our big challenge is that the people are going to come in big numbers and we have to get the infrastructure up. So there's immediate plans now on um, building the, the airports and, the, and the, the network of that connect all of the different uh, tourism entities. When I was here last year, I was flying around. I was landing at airports. I was the only plane on the runway. Uh, there was a tower there. But guess what? There's nobody in the tower. I mean, the, it, you're really in the, infant, in, in the infancy stages. Yeah, one could say that. Uh, I just could, did. Yes, and and you're the best. Um, Stop the, sucking up. The difference <laughs> is the difference is that uh, you have the resources to catch up quickly, yeah, yeah. and you have the focus to catch up quickly, and you have the talent to catch up quickly. So, um, where does government officials, ministers, we work very closely interministerially. All the CEOs of the Giga, Giga projects are very close. Uh, we don't see ourselves in competition with each other. We all, uh, we're all very excited about the future of the kingdom. We all admire the crown prince because he's the hardest worker out of all of us. Um, he's an 80-hour-a-week guy. Um, he's in the details. If you go and do 89 99% work, you, you don't want to do that. He'll catch you out on that. And if you bring him renderings that are not carefully thought out, he'll pick something up on them. And you don't want to do that either because it's, not, it's the, not the right use of his time. So he set a very high standard here. And now, from a tourism and infrastructural point of view, he's got everybody marching in the right direction. With all due respect to the movie Field of Dreams, right. if you build it, will they come? Absolutely, because what uh, you, know, you and I have been around the world. It is a staggering, staggeringly beautiful country, very warm-hearted people. And it's got a very rich, colorful culture. So when you talk about music and dancing and costuming and food and uh, d different things to see and do, I mean, it's, it, it, I, I will say that by 2030, I have no doubt in my mind that the kingdom will be one of the top uh, 10 tourist destinations in the world. I have no doubt. Well, everybody wants to be first on their block. I know that. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the nature of travel these days. Yeah. Uh, the good thing I can say is that since you're starting at such a, a basic level, considering what has gone on before, you don't have to fix something that got broken. You can actually engineer stuff into it from the beginning. Yeah, and you also learn what other people well-intended. You learn from their mistakes. And uh, and you see, with the UNESCO World Heritage Site that I have with today, where the Saudi state started, you don't want to trample that. That's sacred. You know, you got to make sure that that's preservation is a big, a big piece, not just development. And um, I will tell you that um, my colleague, John Pagano, who's the CEO of the... Uh, Red Sea Project, who developed uh, Canary Wharf and uh, Bahamar, 
one of the most staggeringly beautiful islands in the Red Sea. Had, uh, it was a turtle migration stopover point. And it is a natural for development. When a crown prince heard that that was a stopover point for migra uh, migrating turtles, he said, no, you can't touch that at all. No, 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 but maybe, maybe we can kind of change the way they swim around. No, there's none of that. You can't touch it. Go find another one. I mean, so th that's the integrity he brings. Wow. I mean, so basically when you're building green, you're doing it from the ground up. Oh, he's very strict on that. Look, today or last year, why do you think we, we had the uh, first ever, and now, tomorrow, we have the 2019 Formula E race, the electronic cars, 100,000 people coming uh, over the next uh, two days because he wants to show that the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is not just oil. And tourism is, and he has said it on many public appearances, after the diversification of sustainability with energy resources, tourism is number two. But Saudi's very focused on diversifying um, its economic uh, commercialization. And will I wake up in a, in, a, in a month and find TGIFs in Starbucks? Um, you'll find them in the right places, yes. And why will you find them in the right places? Because that's what the society wants. Jerry Anzarillo, the CEO of the DGDA. Jerry, thanks for coming. Not to suck up to the Peter Greenberg. <laughs> if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. My next guest I met a year ago when we actually did a television show together here in Saudi Arabia, out in the, in the middle of a forest. And I, did you, hear, you heard me right, a forest in the middle of Saudi Arabia. And if anybody would know where that was, it would be my next guest because she's not just a traveler, she's just not an adventurer. She's the first Saudi woman to summit Mount Everest. And uh, she's so much younger than me, this is disgusting. <laughs> Raha Muharak, how are you again? Hi, Peter, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for seeing you again. It's such a pleasure. You know. One of the reasons why we talked to you last year for my show is you are so much symbolic of the way this country is changing and how it's changing, not just in terms of opening its doors to travelers from the outside, but in terms of how it's opening itself to its own citizens on the inside. Remarkable change over a very short period of time. Incredible. Uh, some would even say radical, considering where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to ask the indelicate question for a reason. How old are you? 33. Oh, so old. Okay. <laughs> but when you were growing up, did you ever envision that you yeah. would be sitting in this kind of a hotel talking to me about... The fact that you can just get away and run everywhere you want to go no. and do anything you want to do. It's, a, it's such a blessing to be able to realize a dream that you thought impossible. Being able to drive in my country, being celebrated as an athlete in my country, being a spokesperson in, in so many aspects of adventure and travel and tourism in my country as a woman is, is I, I never imagined this would happen and it happened in my lifetime. I'm so, so proud of it. When we first met, you told me the story of, of how you had your conversation with your father. Yes. Because, let's face it, old habits die hard. Yeah. What happened when you told your dad what you wanted to do? <laughs> so any father, I think, regardless of where you're from, would have, would, would have a bit of a problem when his daughter comes up, and his youngest daughter comes up and says, I'm going to go climb the highest mountains in the world. And one of them is Everest, by the way. So obviously any father would have this reaction. Add to that the fact that he's an Arab father, a Saudi father, and a, a father of a daughter. So of course he was like, are you insane? Why are you doing this? This is, no, you can't do this. And he was completely against it. And I think that that was one of the most... Uh, beautiful things in life because that big no changed my life. 
he, the fact that he was saying no made you want to do it more. Me, so he always says she climbed because of me. <laughs> he takes credit for it. But that wasn't just your, I mean, you, then you started climbing everywhere. And then I started climbing because I was so, I, I loved it so much and I got so engrossed But, but, but can it. I ask you a question? Was it a way to get out of the country or was it a way to basically just express your need to have that freedom? I wouldn't say it was a way to get out because I've, I've traveled, I've lived in the UAE, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate with my family. They're quite open-minded in that because I studied outside, I studied in the UAE. But it was a way for me to self-express. It was a way for me to, to pick my own path to prove that I get to choose my path. It was a self-expression more than anything. And in a way, you were a trailblazer because at the time you did it... <laughs> no one else did. Nobody. <laughs> no. I mean, right? Yeah, so but when, when I climbed, I always joke and say, yeah, I climbed before it was cool, before it was acceptable, before it was celebrated. Like I, I had a hard time finding gear, uh, getting uh, permits to go, getting companies, getting sponsors. I didn't... I, it was very difficult for me because it wasn't, it wasn't okay. It wasn't... It wasn't culturally accepted. It wasn't culturally accepted, of course. But beyond that, uh, when I first met you a year ago, the rule was women wore a bias. Yes. Now they've changed those rules. That rule has also evolved. When I was here a year ago, you still had the religious police. Changed. Actually, the religious police has, has evolved a lot over the years. But the major changes are the driving, uh, the, the, the dress code, uh, the, travel, the travel permits. Um, overall, you see more and more women involved as the face of Saudi. When you come to the airport, you have females stamping you stamping your passports. That is new. That is the last couple of years. You come to the hotel, you have hospitality staff. A lot of them are women. It used to be a, a very rare thing. Now it's a common thing in a year. So I'm just so, I'm so excited to see what's going to happen in the upcoming years. If just in one year and in between this conversation we're having right now and that conversation me and you are having, you can see a different an, evol an evolution that's in front of your eyes. Well, they've changed all the other rules too. A couple that's not married can now stay in a hotel. And this is because... In the same room. They're trying to uh, encourage tourism on a broader scale, not just in the Arab world. So they're tolerant and they understand that there is a lot of people that come from, from abroad that don't necessarily have the same culture or background as us. Now, old habits do die hard. So and the question is, well. has there been resistance to this? I think any evolution in history will find resistance. People, so what kind of resistance? Uh, a lot of people criticize. Uh, they think that by us opening our country to the world, we would, we would lose part of who we are. And that's absolutely not true. You celebrate who you are. Inviting people to come and see your culture does not make your culture any less true. It makes it more celebrated. And when I was with you, speaking of seeing who you are uh, and seeing where you are, I mean, who knew that Saudi had a forest? You and I were hiking in a forest. When they invited me last time and told me the location, I said, yeah, sure. They, they were telling me this location. I'm like, yeah, okay. We show up, and it was this gorgeous, lush, green forest. And I was looking at Peter, and I'm like, where are what we? What are we doing where here? Where are we? Exactly. And then uh, after, uh, I did a tour. I did a two-month tour of, of doing a show about tourism in Saudi Arabia. After those two months, I was, I was blown away, and I was sad that I didn't know about this beauty. And now I can tell people... The amount of things that there are, are, are that are hidden in Saudi Arabia are shown to the world is is just incredible. Now I've got to ask. Now I've got to ask you the elephant in the room question. Oh God! I have to do it, and that is when I was coming over here uh, this time. Uh, some of the reaction, which I expected, by the way, was about Khashoggi, mm -hmm. and people saying, "Why would you go there? You know, be safe." Uh, they, they, you know, the, people just not approving of my trip mm -hmm. because of that terrible tragedy. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with that? How do you deal with that internally here in Saudi Arabia? Every single person represents who they are, 
their background, their, their nationality, their religion. You are an ambassador to where you come from. There are always terrible things that happen, but that does not reflect on the rest of the, the, the people. So we need to conduct ourselves in a way to show this beautiful side of Saudi Arabia. There's always bad press, and as you know, media likes negative stories. So individually, the way I, I well, try to Well, it's not a question of liking it. We have to deal with it. Yeah, so the way I deal with it personally is I represent the Saudi. I'm, I want to represent the, the, the kindness of the people, the hospitality that you, you, you would be surprised by. Uh, these warm smiles and curiosity, and there's, there's really a hunger for us to share our country with the world. That's how I, I, I try to represent myself. And, and very quickly in the time we have left, what's the one challenge that's still confronting you? Uh, personally or in, ge in, in general? Tell me both. Uh, personally, I think um, there's still a lot of walls that need to come down, a lot of barriers that we need to, need to overcome. I want to do more in sports. So I, I want to get more involved in sports. And then in general, I think there's a very deep misconception about how, our, how Saudis are. So that's the thing that we need to work on. Raha, Mark, a great pleasure to see you again. Pleasure to be here. And we'll hike in the forest, but I'm not going to Everest, okay? <laughs> sure. Okay. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Also in Saudi Arabia, the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly and one of our regulars on our PBS series called The Travel Detective, Arnold Weissman. I called you Arnold. How are you, sir? I heard that. You, you, you must have looked at my passport. That's the only time I've ever seen that name <laughs> with you. Uh, quite a time to be here in, in Saudi Arabia. I was here about a month and a half ago when they made an announcement of staggering proportions, at least in the travel world, that for the first time in the 89-year history of the kingdom, they were literally opening the doors uh, for everybody to come. Uh, more than 50 countries get an e-visa right now. You can you can actually sign up online. It's it's almost automatic. It's about 120 bucks. But the thing is, it's it is a radical departure from the way this kingdom has operated up until now. The only people who used to get a visa were if you were going to the Hajj as as a Muslim, or you were invited as a uh, from from a royal family member or doing business here. That was it. So this is a brave new world. It is, and it's interesting because when I checked in uh, on Emirates Airlines, this is so recent that the woman checking me in had never seen a tourism visa to Saudi Arabia, and she was a little befuddled by it and was trying to figure out where the numbers go that she was supposed to then enter. So this is a brave new world. 
And the thing is, it's one thing to open the doors. It's another thing to change the rules. And it's also another thing to build up the infrastructure that's necessary to support travel and tourism. And not only change the rules, but change the mindset. Because this is a kingdom, as you say, for more than 80 years, which has never had the experience of welcoming leisure travelers. They know, they've always known how to uh, have a welcome mat out for business, but these are going to be people who are going to be walking the streets, walking into shops, maybe not being uh, prepared as well uh, to be in a culture that's very different from the one that they come to. And uh, so this is going to be an adjustment for travelers and hosts alike, I believe. And the thing is this, if you look at the map, and most of my fellow listeners don't usually look at the map. I'm always beating you up, by the way, when I say this. Take a look at the coastline of Saudi Arabia from Jeddah on the Red Sea. They're developing, uh, and they're doing it as a, as a seriously green project. They're developing the Red Sea project, 22 separate islands that have never been touched in the Red Sea. Now, they're not developing all 22. They're developing a couple of them. But the point is, this is a first uh, they're doing stuff in Jeddah. They're doing stuff at World Heritage sites that have never been seen before or properly displayed. Uh, places like Alula, which uh, if you see the photos there, th nothing's been retouched. That's exactly how it looks. I was out there last year. Blew me away. Yeah, it's really a rare opportunity. There's not too many times that a country is, in essence, new, newly available. There, this has happened uh, in my lifetime really only a couple of times. First, maybe when Nepal opened its doors to visitors, then Tibet, the Himalayan kingdoms, Bhutan. These are ones that for many, many years were, were closed off to visitors. Sometimes you have a destination which sort of disappears and comes back like Vietnam did uh, due to geopolitical uh, situations. But this, I mean, I'm really trying to think of one besides those Himalayan kingdoms where it was just off-limits to leisure travelers and then suddenly was on. Well, you know what it is? It's, it's off-limits to, to all travelers if you have a conflicted area of civil war or, or a natural disaster or, I mean, an ongoing conflict with the world, right? I mean, most people would think that, you know, Iran might qualify for that. It really doesn't, but most people think it does. Uh, most people thought years, years and years ago for, you know, for Cuba would qualify for that. It really doesn't, but that was the optics. Uh, in this situation, it really was a closed kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting you say that because as Americans, and most of your listeners are Americans, there are, we have still some restrictions, and they, they change from time to time. So Cuba was essentially off the map, though you could go. All you had to do was go to Canada or Bahamas and buy a ticket. And just ask them not to stamp the passport, and pretty much no and one thousands of Americans did that. It was, you know, for all those years in Cuba, so many Americans did that, and you know, and the United States government knew it was going on, but they never enforced the law because to do that would be to acknowledge how many were actually sneaking in. Yeah. It was sort of like the Claude Rains character in Casablanca, shocked to finding out that gambling was going on, but collecting his winnings from the night before. Then the Obama administration loosened things up. Anybody could go. The, the air, every airline f filed to fly there. Every cruise line was going. The Trump administration has essentially reversed all that uh, and, in fact, canceled all U.S. flights to, to Cuba other than flights to Havana. So, But guess what? Americans are back to the way they were before the Obama administration. They're sneaking in again through, through Nassau, through Mexico, through Canada. Uh, it, it's, it's, 
And of course, everybody's looking the other way again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that to try to police that with all the other things, frankly, that immigration and customs have to worry about. It's it's not a high priority. Right, but in this case of Saudi Arabia. Again, it really was closed. There wasn't a way to sneak in. You either were invited on an official level or you were a, a, a religious pilgrim going to, uh, to the Hajj in Mecca. That was it. So now, for the first time, anybody can go. And as you said about your experience at the airline, you know, showing that visa, they're looking at you like, what is this? But here we are. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's amazing. And the, and the fact that you and I are here for the inauguration of a new development. Uh, well, it's actually not even a new development. It's a development of an original city, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is going to be newly reopened. Newly reopened, and and with the addition, my understanding is, of hotels, even a university, some housing that there's going oh, to no, be Oh, no, the infrastructure is coming in. Right. The golf courses are going to do formula, e- e- E1 formula races. Yeah. I mean, crazy stuff. I mean, this is radical. And... Let's also talk about how they changed the rules. It's just not just opening the door. They changed the rules. Women are not required, visitors, to wear an abaya, uh, although you do want to be respectful. You don't want to wear short sleeves, anything. Uh, cleavage, not accepted. Um, uh, a mar- an unmarried man and woman are now allowed to spend a, a night in the hotel room together. This is not allowed before. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening. Women can now drive. Uh, Things that we take for granted in the United States, I mean, women can actually go to the movies. They can actually attend sporting events, soccer, big deal here. Now they get to go. So this isn't just a slow change. This is a slam dunk radical change. And it's and it's changing more and more every day. Yeah, it, it is going to be uh, interesting to see how uh, the two, uh, the culture, which, and by the way, Arab hospitality is legendary. You know, in terms of they, they, they don't necessarily need to have had a lot of exposure to instinctively be welcoming. And this is true across North Africa, true throughout the Middle East. Uh, and I think some Americans may, for the first time, experience this really, really warm hospitality. Exactly. And the bottom line is we're not ready for it. I mean, we're not. But the thing is, I remember when I went to Jordan for the first time, all my friends said, be careful. And I felt no problem whatsoever, and and everybody was like offering me their hospitality in a, in a, in a very genuine way, uh, and the same thing happened in Egypt. You know, I used to say that if you ask for the time of day in uh, in Israel, they'll tell you they don't have time to tell you that because it's it, it's so tough living there, and they're always in a state of conflict. If you ask for the time of day in Egypt, you never find out what time of day it is because they're too busy inviting you to their house for dinner. <laughs> If you ask the time of day in, in, in Lebanon, they'll tell you the time of day by showing you the most expensive Patek Philippe watch they bought. <laughs> um, and, uh, and now in Saudi Arabia, it's not about an, a, 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 a conspicuous display of wealth because they've already had that. I mean, you know, gold leaf is there's, there's a reason why Donald Trump feels at home here. There's gold leaf everywhere. But the point is, it's, it, it, they're not pushing it in your face right now because they realize that may not fly that much anymore. What they're really doing is developing as a cultural center. They're developing as a historical center. They're, de- they're developing as a gastronomic center. They're, they're basically, with a capital D, developing. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting, you know, the, so Saudi Arabia is not without its controversial elements. 
Uh, some people look at the government and disapprove of things that they've done. But one thing that I would say I find to be true, no matter where you go in the world, there's a difference between the government and the people. And regardless, Although I have to tell you, look, there's, a, there's, a, there's an elephant in the room. We know what it is. Some people might even describe it as the room is the elephant, and that is the Khashoggi murder. Uh, it's still very fresh in our minds. It's only a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, you can't discuss Saudi Arabia. This is the reality. These are the optics. In the midst of all this rapid and very welcoming development, changes in rules, changes in lifestyle, changes in the approach that this country has for the first time to travel and tourism, it all still occurs in the context of the murder of uh, Mr. Khashoggi, which happened just a little more than a year ago at the Saudi consulate in, in Istanbul. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that is something that's on everyone's mind. When I told people I was going to be coming to Saudi Arabia, it was the first thing that they said. You know, are, are, are journalists going to be welcome there? Don't they have issues with journalists? And, I mean, certainly that's, was, that situation was very different fr from all the press that are here today. There are, I think, uh, something like 40 journalists that I've been uh, seeing a bit of the Riyadh with. Uh, and it seems certainly that there's no issues with people who are covering travel and tourism. But I but think you there is. It, but, but you also can't but, do it in a vacuum. No, no. And I, I was going to say that I think it's very different if you are covering the political aspects of this uh, kingdom. And there is certainly not much room for dissent particularly if you are a Saudi, whether you're living here or abroad. Right, and that hasn't changed. But the bottom line is, and, and I'm not trying to be uh, to look at this through rose-colored glasses, however, I will say there's historic precedent that travel and tourism changes things much more rapidly than other things for the better. I mean, take a look at ping-pong diplomacy in China. Take a look at, at what the Obama administration did in Cuba, even though it was later reversed by the Trump administration. Take a look at, at any time... You open borders at any time you build bridges and you allow the, 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 the very strong uh, driver of the economy, otherwise known as travel and tourism, to take command. It's amazing how a lot of barriers that were either unjust, unfair, or just plain wrong drop down. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And, and it's the interchange of ideas. Uh, the exposure to people who you may only have preconceived notions about, all of these things change societies. I've been coming to Saudi since the Gulf War I. I was in Dharan getting shelled by Scud missiles. Um, and that was my. And the reason I was able to go to Dharan was because I was a journalist covering the war. Otherwise, with my last name being Greenberg in those days, I couldn't get in. But they, the Saudis had to let us in then. That was 1990. That's 29 years ago. Now I'm back. And the difference is, wherever I'm walking down the street, in a hotel lobby, at a restaurant, people are starving for what? A conversation. It, it, it's sort of like they want to engage. They want to know what you think of their country. Because they've been, just as much as we've been kept out, they've been living in a vacuum as well. Yeah. It was very interesting one time uh, when there was a brief moment in 2004 when Libya was open to visitors. Libya was another one of these countries where technically you were allowed to visit at that time, but you had to have your entire passport translated into Arabic, and it was one hurdle after another. But there was just this little opening. I went in. I As soon as people found out I was American, if I was shopping for, uh, let's say, a ceramic plate, they gave me two more as a gift. I was buying a musical tape. They gave me more. It was just the the 
happiness at seeing a visitor and being able to talk, whether it was in English or French, was amazing. And you'll find the same today if you, you and I airdropped into Tehran. It wouldn't change. Um, now, the flip side of that, and it's, 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 a, it's a dilemma for the country as well as some of those of us who don't want to see a TGIF in Riyadh right away, and that is the danger of any of these places becoming too westernized, the danger of any of these places becoming too, um, too franchised, if you will, yeah. with, with Western culture, because one of the reasons why you want to go anywhere, whether it's Saudi Arabia or the Sudan or Syria or Syracuse, New York, for that matter, it's because you want to experience the place as it is within its own set of cultural and religious and historic parameters. Absolutely. And in fact, I was a little bit nervous going through the airport to see a Burger King, Domino's Pizza, and Starbucks. So the, the, the Western businesses have taken root here. Uh, there are very, very few places in the world, actually, where you don't see that. And those places tend to be actually the Himalayan kingdoms. Bhutan, I believe, has no stoplights even. I mean, it is really a, uh, a step into another world. And it is discouraging. And, you know, what happens similarly with this sort of globalization is you go to Morocco and you, you're looking at a souvenir sta uh, stall and you see the same items made in China that you just saw in uh, Vietnam. I mean, it's really the, the hom homogenous nature of what goes on in globalization is really concerning for travelers. And you know what? It's going to stay that way for a while because the aspirational aspects of people wanting to be Western. I mean, Bhutan may, may have a pretty good chance of maintaining their, their own sensibilities and their own culture. But everywhere else, you know, we're living, living in a world where everything goes viral. Everything goes viral. You know, somebody, Lady Gaga comes up with, with, with one release record or... Or, you know, and, or, or, you know, bingo, it's already here. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. He's the CEO of the Forbes Travel Guide. Come Philippe Boyan, how are you, sir? I am fine, let's Peter. One of the things that you do... Uh, not just in Saudi Arabia, but all over the world, is you come in because you guys are measuring luxury, you're measuring service, you're measuring the delivery of service, you're measuring training, uh, and you're doing that for hotels on a worldwide basis, hotels, resorts, people in the service industry. Here is this brave new world of Saudi Arabia that for the first time in the 89-year history of the kingdom is opening up itself to the world's largest industry, travel and tourism. This is, I mean, at one point it's got to be very exciting, and at the other point it's got to be extremely challenging. That is correct, Peter. We are indeed the only independent <clears throat> rating agency for hotels, restaurants, and spas around the world. Um, we rate up to 900 standards. Um, we are now active in 74 countries. We do around 2,300 inspections every year for hotels, restaurants, and spas, as I said. And we are incredibly excited to be here in Saudi Arabia because, as you, noted, as you mentioned, uh, the country is opening up. And what I've noticed here, and which is extremely exciting for us, is that the bar has been set incredibly high. 
from from the beginning from the beginning and uh, we have dealings here with the ministry of tourism and uh, we appreciate it so much and we admire that they're setting their service levels at an incredibly high level so they don't just want to be five star my impression is they want to go beyond that and they want to create they want to create standards that have never been seen before and this is a new challenge for us it's exciting and I think it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for everybody. I mean, it's one thing for either you or an operator to come in and try to fix something or improve something that's already there. In this situation, they can actually engineer it from the beginning. Absolutely, because they are in the process of setting their own standards and their own rating systems for their hotels. And uh, we would love to be a part of that. Now, how do you go about, you, you mentioned 900 standards. Let's, mm -hmm. get, you know, let's go beyond Saudi Arabia. It's what you do for a living every day. I can see that one of those standards would be, you know, length of delivery time of room service. Okay, that would be, you know, the, the, the touch points that everybody goes through from the moment, actually from before they even check in till the time they check out and they're racing for the airport and wondering what was on that bill. The way we work is we assume that every top luxury hotel has great hardware. That means today, if we walk into a luxury hotel, they have great public areas, wonderful bedrooms, very comfortable beds, great bathrooms. The thread, but count, the thread counts there. Absolutely. The thread count is there. 75% of our standards are service-based. For us, it's all about the emotional experience in a hotel. It's all about how does the hotel make the client feel. And this is why... Our standards are the most difficult in the world. And let me give you an example. We are now operating in 74 countries. There is only 209 five-star Forbes hotels around the world. That's it. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And, of course, the question I always have to ask, not just of you, but of the CEOs of Marriott and Hilton and Hyatt and Wyndham, and you go through the whole list, Fairmont, Accor, is it's one thing to say you are in the family. It's another thing to, to retain the flag, meaning you talk to the guys at Marriott, they're opening up one new hotel every 16 hours. I mean, that's that yells to me uh, a challenge of how do you maintain quality control when you're opening at that rate. And then the second part of that question is, for the owners of those hotels who don't meet those standards, how fast are they deflagged and they're no longer Marriott's or Hyatt's? or Wyndham's or Ritz-Carlton's? The way we work is to achieve five stars, you have to score 90% on your inspection report, and the maintenance score is 87%. So every year after that, you have to score 87%. If minimum, you fall minimum. Minimum. If you fall below that, you go on performance notification for one year, and, if, and then you need to score 90% again to get back to five star. If that doesn't happen, you go you lose a star and you go to four star. In the last, let's say, two years, mm -hmm. without naming names, how many, how many hotels have dropped down? 45. 45 and have dropped out, down to four star. And then we have, on average, 30 to 35 new five stars that come in every year. Because, of course, we continue to expand. This year, for example, we expanded in 60 new destinations, including Mauritius, Maldives, Seychelles, etc. We've been talking to Philippe Boyan, who's the CEO of the Forbes Five Star. Philippe, in our last segment, we talked about 
how many hotels make the cut, how many don't, what kind of score performance have you have to make. But let's go back to that 900 standards. What's the one stand? What's the one measurement in that 900 that people aren't expecting you to measure that can actually make or break a hotel? It's the service, and how we measure the service is by graciousness, by anticipatory service, um, and, and, and by you guys sense have, of personalized service. And and you guys have basically mystery inspectors, right? You're not. We have 55 inspectors around the world that are fully employed, and it is funny because every time I go to a party or a cocktail party, people are, of course, coming up to me and say, we would love to be an inspector. We would love to stay in the best hotels of the world. I said, that's all very good and well, but let me explain that any one of our inspectors on the road 260 days a year, you have to erase... You're living, you're living in hotels. Absolutely. And you have to erase your social media platforms. We have you can't post anything. Any of our inspectors, none of our inspectors have any social media presence because we cannot run the risk that somebody in the hotel is going to recognize the inspectors. It well, has to be well, totally incognito. Listen, everybody likes to say where they are on their social media platform, and it's very easy to make to connect the dots saying, oh, he's at Absolutely. our hotel. And and I'm assuming, and I, I think I'm going to be right about this, in all the years that you guys have done this, every once in a while a hotel does figure out one of your guys, and then what do you do? We called the hotel. We said we have very good information. There is indications on the report that our inspector has been identified, spotted, yep. and therefore we're sending you a complete new inspector. So we erased the results of that inspection, and over the next three to four months, we send them a complete new incognito inspector. And incognito means they make a right? Regular reservation, right? We make reservations through online booking agents. We make reservations through travel agents, through corporate companies. We make absolutely sure that nobody can detect where the information So nobody is. in that chain of, of information is getting back to the fact that the reservation was made by Forbes. Right. Absolutely not. And they're paying for everything. They're paying for everything. They pay for their rooms. They pay for their travel. They pay, they pay for, for that the six dollar. They, for they pay for that $6 bottle of water. Absolutely. $6 <laughs> is quite reasonable. We've, uh, we've seen worse. We've seen worse. And that's the problem. I mean, I, if, if I were inspecting a hotel, anytime somebody charged me a $6 bottle of water, they'd be out of the program. Yeah, absolutely. But it happens. It does happen. All right. So you mentioned service, but let's get, get even more fine-tuning here. What are they measuring uh, within that service category? Are they measuring how long it takes? To, I said before, how long it takes to deliver the room service. I'll give you an example of what happened to me recently. I was in Chicago at the W Hotel. It was late in the afternoon. I was hungry. It was, it was one of those middle hours, like 3 o'clock. It was too late for lunch, too early for dinner. So I called room service. I never looked at the, at the menu. I just said, you got a pizza? Yeah, we have a 10-inch cheese pizza. So I ordered the pizza, all right? It takes 45 minutes to get there. But here's the worst part. Now they give me the bill. What do you think a 10-inch pizza costs at the W Hotel in Chicago? Um, let me have a guess. $38? You're too low. Seriously? $44. Wow. For a 10-inch pizza. The pizza itself was $27. Was it good, Peter? At $44, it had to be gold-plated at this point. <laughs> It, it was $27 for the pizza. Then they added a service charge, a delivery charge. How about this? IDR. You know what that stands for? Oh, no, IRD. In-room dining charge, right? So Amazing. by the time it totaled up, I could have gone, I could have bought an entire Domino's franchise, right, for the cost of that pizza. Now, if I was scoring that hotel, by the way, I did score that hotel. It, it, I, I went on the air with it, right? right? That's, my, that's my prerogative to let people know this is wrong. The best example I can give you, uh, some of our competitors, they have on their inspection list, you go for breakfast, once you're seated, within three minutes your coffee needs to be served, right? 
we don't get hung up about the three minutes or four minutes. We ask ourselves, how was this coffee served? Was there eye contact? Was there interaction between the waiter and the customer? Was there a relationship being built? Was there a conversation? That's what we are all about. And that's the sense of personalized service. You just mentioned the, the big bad word I talk about all the time, conversation. Absolutely. There's a cultural disinclination these days in the service category to have a conversation in life in general. Everybody's too busy Instagramming their food and not talking about it. Right. Good hotels realize that the customer is there to integrate and to connect with the community, with the people, and they want to find out the local way of life. So we need to facilitate that as hotels. And what I'm noticing here in Saudi Arabia, and this is not my first time here, is that everybody you meet is almost desperate for a conversation because they want to engage and they want to talk and they want you to love their country and they want to tell you about their country. Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited because you're absolutely right. Those people are hungry to get to know their customers. They are anticipatory. They are gracious. And I think once we start rating hotels here, it's going to be fantastic because uh, this is what the Forbes standards are all about. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My next guest, we start her by HRH, Her Royal Highness, Princess Adwa. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I, uh, in, in full disclosure, I, I want to give your full name because it's, it's just too much fun. You ready? Okay. Can I do it? Yeah. Okay. Princess Adwa bin Talal bin Badr bin Saud. <laughs> yes. Okay. But you can call me Adwa for short. I will do that. Okay. And also, in the interest of full disclosure, born and raised here in Riyadh, of course, a yes. full Saudi, but you hung out in the United States. Yes, for in a very long time. Irvine, California. <laughs> And, and Boston. And Boston. Where and you New went, York. And New York. And since we're talking global, you bring to this show a unique perspective, not just a Saudi perspective, but mm -hmm. an American perspective. You lived there long enough to understand us. Yes. And most of us right now, I have to say, cannot find Saudi on the map. Mm-hmm. Cannot even, I mean, they haven't probably even find Syracuse on the map. That's true. Uh, there's a lot of fear factor. Yes. Many of my friends who I consider educated would say to me, why are you even going to Saudi? Mm -hmm. Perception of Saudi for years was basically sand and oil. Yes. Uh, and a few camels running around, maybe, to talk about the stereotypes. Yes. <laughs> but it's much more than that. And one of the things that you do, in addition to being HRH, yeah. is you basically are an enabler mm -hmm. for people who are coming to this country to see and immerse themselves in an experience they would not only otherwise not expect, mm -hmm. otherwise not have. I mean, last year I was here, and I was blown away to find out, and we, we actually shot in forests in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. We were diving in the Red Sea uh, outside of Jeddah, oh, that's... where you had so many basically uninhabited, undeveloped islands. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable, right? My favorite place might surprise you. Where? The empty quarter. Really? Yes. You know why? Why? Because nobody bothers me. <laughs> it is empty. And it's quiet. It's quiet. Yeah. My favorite shot was taken of me years ago mm. on a camel yeah. in the empty quarter. Mm. It was done by helicopter. Oh. And there's no, it's just me and the camel 
And the sand. And the sand. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Not even footprints in the sand. Really? Yeah. So it was it was amazing. And so I'm always blown away by the surprises of this country. Yeah. But when people come here, you have the opportunity to show them those surprises. We do. Um, I'm part of a company called the Traveling Panther. We're a bespoke destination management and experience design company. So we're not a travel agency. We don't book your flights. We don't book your hotels. But we plan the experience that you will have at a destination. If it was Saudi, for example. We have people coming here that want rich culture and history authentic authentic history and they want to go to Al-Ula and check out the elephant rock and all I was the... there I have to tell you yeah if you go at the right time yeah early in the morning or late in the afternoon when the light is perfect mm. it's it's uh, it's mystical really yeah. you know I've never been yet I haven't you had haven't time been? I know imagine I haven't had time I've sent everyone there everyone tells me how amazing it is and I haven't been the only thing I didn't do there What? I didn't get on the camel because I have to tell you about my experience with camels. Why? I think camels are angry, mean animals that spit. They are. I know. <laughs> so and I had a camel wrong. that did not like yeah. me at all. So I didn't get on the camel, but that's okay. I walked under that rock. Really? I, I was unbelievable. You, you need to do I'm telling yeah. you, you need to do I'm planning, I, hopefully, this month because uh, I have to go, inshallah. Yeah. But you are able to plan for these trips. Yes, we are. And what we do is that we try to provide people with an experience that they never thought they would have in Riyadh. Just like Saudi Arabia, a lot of people have been to Dubai and I saw it come up from the sand and the dunes and whatever into all these huge buildings and Burj Khalifa and Burj Al Arab so now we're witnessing that with Saudi and it would be such a great experience for people to come and see it and then see it in four or five years and probably go to Al-Ula go to Umluj see the new resorts see everything once it is already there and the services are available so it's something truly unique well for me I, I you know Everybody talks about these uh, designations of AD or BC in visiting locations, right? Yeah. I want to talk about BKFC, before Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh. I want to go someplace before there's a Starbucks. I yes. want to go someplace before there's a franchise operation giving me a feeling of home that I don't want at yeah. that point. And that's what Saudi is right now. Yes, it is. And we have so many. That's the thing. You've been to Asir before? Yeah. How do you like it? I love it. I, it's one of my favorite places. Yes. I'm surprised how people actually come to Saudi and have been here four or five times. And do you know how many people have been to Saudi that are actually Saudi? It's surprising that most people haven't been. Most people haven't been to the north. Most people haven't been to the eastern province, Al-Hassa. We have such a rich culture that sadly the media does not shine a spotlight on. And they're more concerned with the big cities and all the events that are going on. So hopefully with the 2030 vision and all that's going on, all of this will come to light. Your Highness, when people think of the development, and you mentioned this in the last segment, of mm-hmm. a place like Dubai where the infrastructure really wasn't there and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was. It was. That's really where you are right now in Saudi. Yes. Like even for me, I wake up in the morning and I go to work and one day I look up and there's a new building. Like every other day, something new is coming up. And it's an exciting time for us. And it's also an exciting time for our visit. I've had friends from the U.S. who've been here four years ago and then came this year and they're like, it's a completely different country. Not just because of it being open and more. Yeah, but let's talk about that because sure. you had the you had the opportunity to see American culture. Yes. And you grew up in Saudi culture. Yes. Right. So for so many years, and mm-hmm. you, like so many other Saudi women, yeah. had to basically have two faces. Yes. You had to have two identities. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I remember, and, and I know this, you, you will relate to this. I remember when I first flew into Saudi, um, I'm on a flight from Frankfurt, mm. and there are beautiful women sitting on the plane yeah. in the most beautiful, fa- cutting-edge fashion outfits. Yes. And 
40 minutes before we land. They go, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be landing in Riyadh in 40 minutes. Yeah. And ev- there's a line to the bathroom. Yeah. And what was the line to the bathroom for? To wear their abayas. To, to change over. Yeah. Right? To be completely com- you know, c- compliant with the Saudi culture. Yes. Now they've changed the rules. They have. But at the same time, you have people like me. I've always loved my abaya. Yeah. I wear it in Dubai. I wear it in Kuwait. Honestly, I'll be honest with you. I wear it because I don't want to think about what I'm going to wear. It's easy. It's, it's easy. easy. And they yeah. come in different colors and they're comfortable. Right. But I like that people are given the option. At the same time, I really want to keep it to the point where when people come to Saudi that they see something that's different. When I went to Japan, I got so excited every time I saw a woman in a kimono because I didn't see them that often. So that's what I want people to to feel when they come here. But it's more than just fashion because, first of all, when and where did you learn to drive? Uh, I was 10. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. In the desert. And I hit a tree. When nobody was looking. When there was no one there and I hit a tree. But I got better, of course. You have to be a really bad driver to hit a tree in the desert. Yes. And the, but you know what helped me? The 405. Because my mom let me drive as soon as I got my permit when I was 16. So San I would Diego drive Freeway. from I yes. Don't believe it. Sorry, and I would drive from LA to Irvine every other day to go see my friends because LA was a place to be. You I had guess. to drive in LA. I had to. I yeah, you still have to. But the beautiful thing about learning to drive on the 405, you won't be going very fast. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you can learn to drive while you're driving because yes. you're only going four miles an yes. hour. Yeah. I know. That's so much for traffic. So, so by the the time I started driving here and I actually got my Saudi license, I didn't want to drive because I'm too, I'm either too tired, I don't want to think about parking. So I'm happy but, not driving. Yeah, but for most other most Saudi women right now, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And it gave everyone some type of freedom with their time and freedom with ha- they can do whatever they want to do anytime. And they don't have to think about who's going to pick them up, who's going to, when we were downstairs, there were these two women who want to go somewhere from where we are. And if they had their cars available with them now, they would have gone. They didn't have to think about organizing it and having the things that we take for them. granted. Yes. But that's also like going to the movies. Yes. It's also like going to a football game. Yes. Right? Now mm-hmm. you can go. Now you can go. Now we and people go, really? They had to wait this long to do it? But yeah. you did. They did. And the thing is when I look back now I'm like, oh my God, all of this happened in two years. So what's gonna happen in another two years? Yeah. So well, it's almost exponential. Exactly. That's why I really want people to come now because when you come now you can see how it will change in two years you witness history right in front of you women driving in Saudi was such a historical moment and we were all here to see it happen you know so what else is there I mean we have, have the entire have world you, uh, have you hit any trees lately no <laughs> I'm just double checking I just want to make sure no not and not no I think I hit a car maybe like a few weeks ago when I was backing you up think maybe. you hit a car I think because I heard something but I didn't <laughs> see a scratch so hopefully not so you left the scene of a crime and the scene of the crime was my house garage so if 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 no one complained about me to my mom i think i'm good okay good yeah what's the biggest change for you for me yeah i think it's because when i first came back uh, i used to study in the u.s when i first came back it was difficult for me in the working field i used to work for american express and working in travel now just showed me how much women uh, are accepted in the workforce things are smoother uh, more professional everything is on time and I like that I like that people give us um, the attention and the confidence that we need now as the kingdom is evolving yeah what's your biggest challenge 
for me. Yeah. I think for me, it's just just media and having the right people come here that want to come here and want to see and want to learn and want to experience everything and not just come and sit in a nice hotel and have a nice breakfast. Yeah, the worst thing you do in any destination, and Americans are are guilty of this more than you can imagine, is they go to a resort and never leave the resort. Yes, yeah. I can go to a pool anywhere. Exactly. I'd rather go walk in the street and see people and talk to them and, you know, just experience things. And that's what it's all about. That is what it's all about. So I won't see you on the 405. No. And I won't see you at the pool. No. (laughs) But thank you for coming here and talking to me. Of course. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.